Hello, welcome back to Love God and Your Neighbor. I'm Laura Hutchinson, pastor of First Christian Church in Anniston, Alabama, and I hope life is treating you well these days. I pray that you are able to see blessings even when they're not very obvious. Today we're starting a sermon series called Truth in the Bible. On Sunday, we kicked it off with a discussion about the difference between what is true and what is fact, and how those two concepts relate to the Bible. It was a good conversation. I started out by asking everyone what the word truth means, and I got a lot of answers like, truth is not a lie, or truth is God's word. And then I asked, for something to be true, does it have to actually have happened? Well, the consensus of the group was, no, it doesn't have to have happened for it to be true. In other words, there is a divine truth that can be spoken to us by the Spirit of God throughout the Bible, even if we're reading a story that maybe didn't actually happen. We talked about there being all kinds of different types of literature in the Bible. The Bible has poetry and hymns, narratives, prophecies, parables, allegories, apocalyptic literature, and historical accounts. And in addition to that, we talked about the fact that ancient cultures did not record history in the same ways that we do today. We can see an account of a battle that really did take place, but the numbers of soldiers fighting or the numbers of people killed are greatly exaggerated. That doesn't mean that the whole account is a lie or should be discounted. Very often, numbers in ancient Judaism and Christianity held a lot of symbolic meaning, so the numbers of people or livestock or days or whatever is being counted might represent something else, like the goodness, power, or judgment of God. But the account of the event that happened around those numbers probably did happen. The key is to look at a story and ask ourselves, why did God want this in the Bible? What are we supposed to learn from this? What does this have to do with our relationship with God, with God's relationship with us, and with our relationship with others as members of God's family? The Bible does not have to be literally true, word for word, factual. For It, it doesn't have to be literally word for word, factual for it to be true. And actually, I would say that trying to hold the Bible up to literal expectations is dangerous for everyone. I have known people who are taught to read the Bible literally, but there are things that don't hold up to that standard. And so in order for people to hold the Bible to literal expectations, they have to modify, change, or even ignore realities in their own lives. And then one day, something will happen that will force them to realize that something in the Bible didn't actually happen, and their whole worldview crumbles around them. This can lead to serious disillusionment and even complete destruction of their faith. Like, if it's not true, if it didn't happen, if it didn't happen the way it says it happened in the Bible, then none of it is true, and God must not exist at all. Sadly, I know several former literalists who are now devout atheists because of this very phenomenon. And so today we begin a study of three stories in the Hebrew Scriptures, also known as the Old Testament to us Christians. These three stories probably didn't happen, but they still carry great truths for us as people of faith. Today we're going to spend time with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
Next week, we'll visit Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And then on the 27th, we'll rediscover the story of Jonah. I'll be out on the 20th recovering from surgery, so keep me in your prayers and know that we will be back the following week. So I invite you now to worship with me in the name of divine truth given to us by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. scripture comes from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth your children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of about of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all who lived. And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for the woman and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, please. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, so the story of Adam and Eve. You know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is a story known far and wide, right? Whether you're Christian or Jewish, Islamic or Hindu, atheist or agnostic, if you have any familiarity with Western religion at all, you are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. Most people know that Adam and Eve are the first man and the first woman of God's creation. 
They know that they lived in a paradise called Eden. They know that there was a tree, an apple, and a snake, sometimes called Satan. They know that Eve first ate the forbidden apple because it was, and then she gave it to Adam. They know that because of the serpent, because of Eve's weaknesses and seductive nature, and because of that apple, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden forever, thus dooming humanity to sinfulness, suffering, and death. And because of the things that people think they know about the story of Adam and Eve, This story has been used as a reason to oppress women, as a reason to condemn homosexuality, and as a reason to reject common theories of the history of the planet and the history of humankind, among other other things. What do you think? Does that sound about right? (laughs) Well, I would like to propose an idea that can turn this story on its head and diffuse the negative interpretations of poor Adam and Eve. First of all, like I've already suggested, what if this story never actually happened? Yep, what if it's not a literal account of the first man and the first woman? What if it's just a story? What might that simple shift do to how this story is viewed and interpreted. If it's just an allegory and not a literal account of God's words and actions, nor a literal account of what two literal people did, then does that mean that all women aren't to blame for all the sin in the world? Does that mean that women should not be subject to their husband's authority because they cannot be trusted to be moral all all on their own? Does that mean that the earth could actually be more than 6,000 years old and that humans and dinosaurs didn't actually live at the same time? Does it mean that God is not some tyrant who hatefully cast out his beloved creation simply because they disobeyed him one time? Does it discount the entire concept of original sin altogether? I don't know about that one, but we, you know, that's definitely worth conversation. Maybe this story really happened, and maybe it didn't. But I don't really think it matters one way or another, because the moral of the story remains the same either way. And it's the moral of the story that matters, not the literal events. The thing is, I personally don't believe that a man named Adam and a woman named Eve actually existed. And I also don't really believe that the Garden of Eden actually existed, though I would love it if someone did find proof that it did. Just like I would love to see proof that the Ark really existed and other things in the Old Testament really existed. I'd love to see that. I believe it, though, that the story of Adam and Eve is fiction, but it includes many important truths about how we are to interact with God and with each other. It contains truths about the God, about who God is in relationship to us, and who we are supposed to be in relationship to God. 
Like we discussed at the beginning of this worship service, truth is not limited to things that actually happened in history. For something to be true, it only needs to be of the will of God. Amen? And that's not to say that none of the things in the Bible actually happen. The Bible is made up of all different kinds of literature. Like I said before, it's got poetry, hymns, prophecy, parables, narratives, symbolism, apocalyptic literature, and historical fact. So if the story of Adam and Eve isn't an historical account of what actually happened, what is the point of putting it in the Bible at all? How is this supposed to help us know God, to grow closer to God, and to live in this world as children of God? And of course, living in this world as children of God and knowing God is the ultimate point of all the scriptures, all of them. Well, when I read chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Genesis, I see a story about relationships. Adam and Eve, well, they represent humanity. God is God. And the garden is all of God's creation. The story is about the relationships between all three, and specifically, what our responsibilities are to these relationships. Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar. Um, I believe he's United Church of Christ. He is a theologian, widely respected among theologians, ministers, and scholars. Well, he talks about the story in terms of the narrative and the plot development of that narrative. And he says that the condition for that plot development depends on three things. There is a vocation for human beings. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Vocation, purpose. Their job is to care for and tend the garden. Secondly, there is permit. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. This is in verse 16 of chapter 2. Meaning everything in the garden is permitted for food. This offers an unbelievable amount of freedom for these two human creatures. And it shows us the power of God's grace and generosity. And thirdly and finally, there is prohibition. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall die. Brueggemann says that nothing is explained. The story has no interest in the character of the tree. What counts is the fact of the prohibition, the authority of the one who speaks and the unqualified expectation of obedience. These three verses together provide a remarkable statement of anthropology. Human beings before God are characterized by vocation, permission, and prohibition or boundaries. The primary human task is to find a way to hold the three facets of divine purpose together. Any two of them without the third is surely to pervert life. To live without vocation is a perversion of our life. 
To live without freedom is a perversion of our life. And to live without boundaries set for us by God is a perversion of life. Vocation, permission, and prohibition. The way that the truth of this story carries over into real life is that human beings are given purpose, freedom, and boundaries within the context of God's will. We all have reason for existing. We all have something that God wants us to be doing for the good of the earth and the creatures that live upon it. We have also been given great freedom from within our own existence. We are welcome to eat whatever we want, and God gives us the freedom to choose what we do every moment of every day. We have the freedom even to choose God. And then there are also boundaries that we must live by if we want to be in relationship with God. So we even have the freedom to choose to accept those boundaries. There is a certain sense of humility that we must have and a reverence for God's will in everything that we do. And God calls us to be obedient, not because we agree with God, but because God is God. Right? We don't have to understand. We don't know why they couldn't eat of the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, right? We don't know. They don't explain it, and it doesn't matter. God said, don't do it. That's all that matters. God is God. So why is it that when Christians talk about this story, there is almost no mention of vocation or the permission aspects, and there is almost complete focus on the prohibition of God? You realize that? I mean, that's all we ever hear is about the prohibition, the punishment, the casting out, the sin. But prohibition only makes sense when it is in relationship with the other two. Brueggemann says that it's all about balance. Prohibition by itself is just mindless control. But when combined with vocation and permission, it becomes a relationship based on mutual love and respect. Balance. But I say it's a balance that we've lost in the midst of people's obsession with punishment and control. And it's easy for us to say they are obsessed with punishment and control while we're not. (laughs) But I often have to keep myself in check. Recently I was speaking with some colleagues, some minister colleagues, and we were talking about how um, frustrated we are with the theology that is taught by certain ministers that is different from our theology. And um, one person said, You know, I'm not a type of person who likes to talk about hell. I'm not a hellfire and brimstone person. I'm not even sure what I believe the nature of hell is. But there are moments when I hope that there is a fiery hell (laughs) for certain people that I disagree with. And then I have to go back and ask God's forgiveness, right? We all like the concept of punishment if it's not for us. So we have to keep that in check. But that punishment does not mean anything. It is out of balance if it is not in contrast with permission and vocation and purpose. 
Well, Renee read all of chapter 3, but the story actually begins in chapter 2. And it starts with God creating the earth, and then God making a man from the dust of the earth. And then God creates the Garden of Eden and puts this man in charge of the garden, which includes the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God gave the man permission to eat anything he wanted in all of Eden except the fruit from that one tree, that tree of knowledge. And then after this, God decides that the man should not be alone, and so he creates all of these animals to keep man company. But they're not enough for the man. So the woman is created in a different way than the man, but no less spectacularly. And she becomes his helper and his partner, his equal in life. Then one day, a sneaky, crafty little snake approaches the woman and begins to sow seeds of dissension into that perfectly balanced life in Eden. And he said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, Well, we may eat the fruit from all the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will have knowledge of good and evil. Being like God, I think, is one of the greatest temptations of life. Up until this point, man and woman had a perfect life. They had everything they needed. They had a purpose for getting up in the morning, a reason for existing. And they trusted God without question. In their obedience came the freedom to live without any anxiety or stress. They had nothing to worry about. Because their relationship with God was so pure, their innocence was so perfect. But at the snake's encouragement, woman and man stopped thinking about God and God's creation and began thinking about themselves. The snake said, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You, 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 the snake said. I, 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 me, 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 they thought. So they ate the forbidden fruit. And notice it always says fruit. It never says apple. But it's always portrayed as an apple. If that's neither here nor there, but, you know, some people, that blows their minds. They ate of the forbidden fruit, and their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. So what does their being naked have anything to do with anything? I mean, if they now know about good and evil, and the first thing they notice is their nudity, does this mean that being naked is evil? Well, I'm going to encourage you not to come to church naked. <laughs> but, no, I don't think being naked is evil. I think that their nakedness symbolizes the vulnerability that they now feel having given up complete trust in God. It symbolizes how exposed they feel because they now know about the problems that sin creates when before all they knew was that God would handle 
everything. Their nakedness symbolizes the anxiety of knowing about the problems without having the power to fix them. The thing is, God still will handle everything even to this day. But we think we need to know everything. We think that we should be able to control everything. And we continue to try and be in charge of our lives, even when we don't have the power, the knowledge, wisdom, or the foresight to truly handle anything. (laughs) Going back to Walter Brueggemann, he says, The givenness of God's rule is no longer the boundary of a safe place. God is now a barrier to be circumvented. The scene moves quickly to its sorry resolution. The serpent has done his work, and she ate, and he ate, and the couple stands exposed beyond the safe parameters of vocation, permission, prohibition. And now, having taken life into their own hands, the prohibition is violated. The permission is perverted. The vocation is neglected. There is no more mention of tending and feeding. They have no energy for that. Their interest has focused completely on self, on their new freedom, and the terror that comes with it. And then, of course, God comes around and immediately senses something is wrong. And see, this is where I know that this is a fictional story, because God didn't know what had happened before he walks in, right? I do know that our God is all-knowing, And, of course, God would know what's going on. And so for the purpose of the story, of the narrative, God comes in ignorant of the sin that has been committed. Where are you, God says? Why are you hiding? And when the man admits that that they are ashamed because they're naked, God discovers what the two humans did and what the snake did, and then there are consequences for everyone. Well, since the beginning of the story, everyone has known that death follows guilt that violates the boundary, right? God put that out there right from the beginning. If you eat from the tree, you will die. Everyone knows that if you eat from the tree, you will die. And it is harsh, for sure. It is a harsh punishment. And God's response when they finally did eat from the tree was also hard, but not nearly as bad as God originally promised. Did you notice that? After all, they were cast out of the protection of Eden, but they still lived. They lived. The miracle is not that they are punished, but that they live. God's grace is given in the very sentence itself. The sentence is life apart from the goodness of the garden. Life in conflict, filled with pain, with sweat, but it is nonetheless life when death had been clearly promised. So this is not a simple story of human disobedience and divine displeasure. It is rather a story about the struggle that God has in responding to the facts of human life. When the facts warrant death, God insists on life for his creatures. Thus, the last scene contains a surprise. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all who lived. And the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and for his wife and clothed them. 
The cursed ones are protected. The one who tests is the one who finally provides. Within the sentence given, God does for the couple what they cannot do for themselves. They can't deal with their shame, but God can and will and does. And the human creatures, in or out of the garden, they still finally must live on God's terms. We still must live on God's terms. So did Adam and Eve really exist in the way that Genesis chapters 2 and 3 describe? I don't know. What I do know is that the answer doesn't really matter. Because the truth of the story stands no matter what. And the truth is that God created us to live in balance with the creator, with creation, and with each other. If we go back to Jesus' top two commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, come straight out of the Garden of Eden. Live in balance with the Creator, creation, and each other. God wants us to choose to be completely obedient to God's will because when we do, we have no cause for anxiety of any kind. Now, I'm a person who lives with an anxiety disorder. Right? I recognize I do actually have to take medication. I can't pray that away. At least I haven't been able to yet. But there is a certain amount of anxiety and worry that comes simply from living in this world and thinking that I have to be responsible for everything. That I can give away. I can trust in the Lord to do what God will do to take care of me. And God wants us to trust God to know about the issues of good and evil. According to this story, we are only to be concerned with fulfilling our own vocational calling in life, with caring for each other, for creation, and for God, and for being obedient to God in all things. If we simply worry about those things, we have nothing to worry about. And God wants our obedience to come not from a place of fear, but from a place of complete and utter trust in God's goodness and power. So the world has become unbelievably complicated and stressful, and that is a problem of our own making, right? Every time there is a problem, we seek to solve it, and then the solution then creates more problems. We just end up creating more trouble. The simplicity and the peacefulness of the Garden of Eden seems so attractive, and yet completely elusive. Eden seems like an impossible goal to achieve, doesn't it? But it's not impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. God wants us to give ourselves over and to submit to the divine. And so let us give all of our lives to the Creator. Let us trust God to take care of the details to solve every problem, to guide us through every decision put before us. Let us live as if we were in the Garden of Eden itself. Let us embrace 
God's perfect will now and forever. Amen. Amen.